Greetings and uh, good morning. It is good to see so many familiar faces. Uh, it's good to see so many uh, new faces. Uh, I bring you greetings also from my wife, Sarah, and my daughter, Emma. Uh, Emma is on her first ever high school youth retreat, and I tell you that to make you all feel old. <laughs> As your children have made me feel old over the last several days. It is good to fellowship with you all together. I also bring you greetings uh, from Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. Uh, we actually do minister to uh, churches and folks in your orbit. In fact, I was just thinking uh, as I prepare for the drive back that um, at this same time, tomorrow we'll have a number of uh, folks from Philly and Westchester making their way down to us for their Monday classes. We have about a dozen or so uh, students from uh, Pennsylvania, and they come down uh, on Mondays and on Wednesdays to, to participate uh, in our classes. And so uh, it is great to partner with you in the ministry of uh, the gospel. Uh, but for this morning, we are in Matthew chapter 16. I invite you to either turn there in your Bibles or uh, it's printed for you in your bulletin, or you can also just listen to it read. And as you listen to it read, uh, be looking for a couple of things. Jesus, in our passage, it's a little bit subtle in Matthew. It's not subtle in Mark. The same passage in Mark, it's very clear that Jesus is himself at a bit of a crossroads. New things are about to happen. A light, a, a, a switch is going to get flipped in the course of this passage such that Jesus is going to begin introducing new ideas, new things to his disciples. You actually see that show up in verse 21. Uh, look there, from that time, Jesus, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many Things. Jesus begins to prepare his disciples, and particularly Peter, to face new trials, new tribulations, and he speaks plainly to them in a new and telling way about the things that they are going to face. Here, then, as I read uh, the Word of God to us, how Jesus prepares his disciples to face what they are about to see. The Word of God. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Father, we pray that we would have the courage to follow Christ, whatever the cost. Peter will testify that he will follow the Christ, whatever the cost, and he will stumble. But in his stumbling, you have protected him. You have restored him. You have established him as the rock, and you have built us, the church, as many bricks upon that rock. And we pray then that you would give us courage to take up our cross, to follow after Christ, even into the heavenly gates. We pray this in his name. Amen. Jesus is at a crossroads, and precisely because Jesus is at a crossroads, Peter is at a crossroads, though he does not know it yet. Uh, in fact, you see Peter in this passage make a powerful testimony, one that he is praised for, not only in this gospel, but in Mark. And in Luke, one testimony that you are the Christ. You are the blessed of God. You are the anointed one. This is no small testimony. In Mark's gospel, again, this is the, Peter is the first to testify such. You can see, look, look at all the crazy things that everyone else comes to the conclusion that Jesus is. I mean, it's, it's no small thing to say, Jesus, uh, who, who do people say that I am? You're Elijah, you're a prophet. Those are pretty bold enough claims, but they pale in comparison to Peter's bold proclamation, you are the Christ, you're the one that we waited for, you are the king that was promised by the seed of David, you are the expectation that will bring all of history to its climactic conclusion. All of this is going on in Peter's head as he testifies, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, yes, Jesus affirms that Peter is correct, and Jesus goes on to tell Peter, precisely because I am the Christ, precisely because I'm the king, I must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And something doesn't compute for Peter. Jesus knows it. Jesus knows that Peter's at a kind of crossroads. Jesus knows that the kind of king that he has come to be is one that Peter does not have the theology for. It's one that Peter doesn't have the, the social 
uh, 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 social skills to process. He's not quite there yet. Jesus has been veiled in his description of these things precisely because no one is quite ready for the full truth. The full ramifications of what it means for the king to come into his city has not yet been fully appreciated by anybody except Jesus himself. But Jesus doesn't leave Peter in mystery. He gives Peter a picture. He gives Peter a promise picture to prepare him for what Peter will face as he is tempted and sifted in Jerusalem by rulers, by scribes, by leaders, by the devil himself. Peter will face temptation and challenges and our Lord gives Peter a promise picture to prepare him. What is that picture? We're going to explore that uh, together. It's right here in this little word, gates. And we're going to be focused for most of our time this morning. I don't want to give you the impression that this will be a short sermon. It won't. But we'll be focused on one word this morning right here. Blessed are you, Simon you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When Jesus uses that phrase, gates of hell, he's giving Peter a picture promise. When he's telling Peter that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church built upon the apostolic band as the rock, he is giving them a picture promise upon which they can meditate and reflect in the weeks, days, years, and decades to come. It will take Peter time to fully appreciate this picture promise, but he will appreciate it and his role in bringing about the fullness of the kingdom of God for the Jew first and also the Greek. It's this little word, gates, that activates in Peter's mind, I would submit to you, a set of images Jesus doesn't give Peter highly technical, theological material here. He doesn't talk to Peter about the eschatological kingdom of God and its not yet appearance here on the earth and the nature of ecclesiology and all of these kinds of things. No, what he does is he probes Peter's imagination. He probes his God-given, biblically-informed, Psalm 24-informed imagination to image the world to Peter. He gives him a picture upon which he can reflect over and over and over again, finding new things there each time around the metaphor. A lot of things happen for Peter when he hears the word gates, and they may or may not happen for us. The idea that cities have gates isn't a foreign concept to us, but we live in the modern world where gates are not really Literal gates are not really a thing in the, anymore. Good metaphors, active metaphors, they, they activate certain kinds of experiences that are normal for people. And the metaphor of gates is going to activate for Peter a, a set of experiences, a way of viewing the world that is very city-focused, city imagery, because in the ancient world, of course, you needed walls to protect the people inside the city. 
and those walls have gates. So when Jesus tells Peter, hell has gates, he's giving Peter a picture of hell that he can start to think through, imagine, appropriate, and to contrast that picture with a similar picture of heaven. And those are our two points. We're going to consider how Jesus is preparing Peter to face the challenges, face the temptations, face the fact that in the kingdom of God, victory so often looks like defeat, like death. And he's going to do that by comparing these two cities and their two gates. First then, uh, the gates of hell. When, we, when Jesus tells Peter that hell has gates, what begins to coalesce for Peter? What does he and what should we begin to imagine in our head? Well, very simply, hell is a city. We actually don't know a lot about hell biblically. Have you ever thought about that? It's kids, your kids, right? Your kids, they ever asked you, hey, tell us what the Bible says about hell. And you know, you've got pictures in your mind, you've got images in your mind fed to you by movies and by um, Dante's Inferno, fed to you by literature and stories that we tell each other. But when you go to the Bible to look for language about hell, almost all of it is metaphorical in character. We don't know a lot specifically about like the metaphysics of the place how society works. But it gives us this picture. It gives us this picture as hell is a kind of kingdom, a kind of city, one that has gates. That implies for Peter a kind of social structure to it. You remember uh, Boaz. When Boaz wants to create a public scene uh, and propose to, propose to Ruth, where does he go to do that? He goes to the gates of the city. Why does he go to the gates of the city? simple answer to that question. You don't need a seminary to figure this out. It's because that's where you go. It's, that's just the place. It's the same reason why if you want to see people, you go to church or the mall, or if you're at work, you go to the water cooler. It's, it's the place at which social stuff happens. It's the place where you would make a public declaration because this is where you go in and out of the city. The city has gates to protect it, and the uh, center city is not actually in the center of the city, it's at the gates, because that's where commerce happens. That's where you go in and out. That's where you meet people. That's where all the pubs are. It's at the gates. And so when Boaz wants to create a scene, he goes to this location. It implies that hell, likewise, has a kind of community life. There are people there. There are, there are demons there. There are souls there. There is a kind of social structure to it. We don't know all of the details, and the goal here isn't to speculate, but it is to remind ourselves that hell, the kingdom of hell, the kingdom of the devil, has, is real, it has aims, it's organized, it has goals, it wants to accomplish things. It needs bodies, souls, selves to do that. 
It's interested in populating itself, in growing. These are realities that exist in this present world order. And of course, this city, as Jesus talks about it and pictures it for Peter, this city has large and mighty and strong gates that are shut. As Peter talks about hell, it is clearly, there's some backstory here, hell is an embattled city. It is a city at war. One of its aims is to conquer a different city, the city of heaven, which we will get to. This is an embattled city. There is a cosmic war going on between the forces of darkness, as Jesus describes them, and the forces of light, the forces of hell, and the forces of heaven. We don't often get to see that battle going on in our daily lives, in the material plane on which we operate, but we time, we don't often, actually often get to see it in the pages of Scripture, but time, uh, occasionally, the Bible will pull up the veil and give us a little bit of a vision of what's going on. Daniel, you'll remember, prays in Daniel 9, the time he's done the math, he knows that uh, the restoration is about to come, and he prays for God to restore Israel, and Gabriel comes, Gabriel says, sorry I'm late, even angels are late sometimes. So when you're late to church, it's okay. Even angels are late. Now, Gabriel says, I'm sorry I'm late because I was doing battle with the prince of Persia, by which he probably means the demonic forces in Persia that are manipulating the principalities and powers of this earth. So not because their kids wouldn't eat breakfast. But nevertheless, he's late and we get a little bit of a picture, a little bit of a vision of the invisible realm, the warfare that we don't normally see as David, excuse me, as Daniel prays to his God. We don't get to see this, but the Bible wants us to know that it is going on. It is going on all the time. The cosmic warfare of the forces of hell are involved in the things that happen on this earth, there is a real battle going on. That should not terrify us if you're worried if your kids are going to sleep tonight. We've got good news a-coming. It's point two. So, you know, you know, stay for it, right? Wait. We'll get there. But we need to realize the reality of the fact that we're not the only ones involved here. And and Peter, his imagination, he knows Psalm 24, he knows his Old Testament, he knows Daniel. It fills in all of that material, all of that good Old Testament material that Peter is not his own, but is a part of an ongoing battle between the forces of heaven and the forces of darkness where not only his fate, but the fate of the whole earth is in the balance. And if that sounds all too mythic and incomprehensible to you, know that there are other worlds than these. This is not the only, what we can see with our eyes is not all of what's going on. In Ephesians 6, Paul gives us a little taste of this. Uh, you don't need to turn there. I want to save your turning energy for when we get to uh, Revelation. But uh, in Ephesians, we're told this, we're reminded by Paul, that great 
armor, whole armor of God passage. You remember the armor of God you're supposed to put on the blessed prey of righteousness and pray and, and stuff like that. Um, and that's armor. Armor to do battle against what? Why are to we be the strong in the Lord and in the strength of the might? Why are we to put on the full armor of God? To stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. We don't get to see the battle strategy. We're not given an image of the map. We aren't given the metaphysics of hell. We aren't told how the demonic forces are, who their generals are and their lieutenants or anything like that. But what we are told is that the things in our present world that affect our lives are a part of this ongoing battle between the forces of heaven and the forces of darkness. And we are agents in that battle. We are not pawns. We are part of it. And we are either serving darkness or light. Be aware. We need to open our eyes. We need to hear with the eyes of faith. We tremble not for them, but we battle against the powers of darkness with the weapons that we have been given, heavenly weapons that come from Christ himself. The final thing that's kind of pictured for Peter here, this is a city, this is an embattled city. It is a city at war. And the weapons that this city is using to win that battle are terrifying. They are powerful weapons. They are not imaginary weapons. They are real, they are powerful, they affect every aspect of our lives. I will list them, uh, list some highlights briefly, low lights, highlights, some of the most infamous weapons that the devil uses briefly. Of course, the first one is temptation and sin. Sin, rebellion against the Father and the Creator. And since the beginning, Satan has been using sin, as, uh, particularly human sin, as a weapon in this ongoing battle. What sin does is it separates us from God, it allies us with, the, with his kingdom, with the kingdom of Satan, and it then it has the added benefit, it's a bonus, it's a win-win for Satan. It, it alienates from us from God, and it alienates us from one another as well. When we sin, we're always rejecting God and hurting other people, always. Private sins, public sins, they hurt. You're fracturing the world. He wields sin. He tells us lies about those sins. He tells us that they're not so bad. He uses deceit. He uses darkness. He operates in the shadows. He tells us that our sin isn't so bad. He tells us that it doesn't really do damage. It tells us that it's not. He tells us the exact opposite of what sin is. Sin is this weapon that he is using to destroy God's kingdom and the world that he loves and, and has created, uh, Satan tells us the opposite is going on. It is not that. Whatever it is, it is not a weapon of your own destruction. Uh, and finally, he uses both of those tools, both of those weapons to bring about death. The great weapon. The weapon that will 
consume us all. Christian, non-Christian, death comes from us for us all. It is inescapable. We live in a world in which the second law of thermodynamics cannot be broken. Everything is decaying constantly. There is no escape from it. There will always be, Jesus himself tells us that in this world there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will always be death. It is the greatest of weapons and he uses that weapon to populate hell. How does hell grow? How does it strengthen? How, is it, how, do, how does uh, Satan add to its armies? He adds to its armies by shutting those doors, shutting the gates of the city and populating the city with fallen souls. It will ever grow. This is, this is why zombie movies are terrifying, right? Because you, no matter how much... I don't like zombie movies, but I hear they're terrifying because no matter how... Winning is losing. No matter how much you battle, you can't escape the reality that hell's forces are always growing. And in the face of this image, in the face of this picture of hell, what Jesus tells Peter is as bad as it gets no matter how terrifying it may be, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Peter, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it for Peter. He doesn't tell him that sin's not that bad, it's not that big a deal. He doesn't give him platitudes. He doesn't give, it, give Peter moralism. You know, all you need is love, and if you have enough love, and you bring enough goodness into the world, hell will not affect us all that much in the end. No, he's, he's realistic about the army, the, the warfare that we're engaged with. But he wants Peter to know that in this battle, in this comic warfare, hell actually, and as you, you can look at the text, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It is well noted by many commentators that in this picture, hell, though it is embattled, is besieged. Hell is the defending force. Those gates are shut, both to keep people in. But the fact that the gates are shut is not a sign of hell's power, but its weakness. Those gates are shut in fear, not in strength. Those gates are shut as a protective measure against the forces of heaven even though those shut gates look so unassailable to us. They are not unassailable. They are shut precisely because they are being assailed. And in that battle, Peter is told no matter how bleak it looks, no matter how much the Christian life looks like death, no matter how much it looks like defeat, this is how we win. Let's trace that out a little bit. Let's turn to the gates of heaven. But I don't see gates of heaven here. I see gates of hell. Where are the gates of heaven? Well, again, Peter's biblically informed imagination is doing the work here. We don't, Jesus doesn't explicitly mention the gates of heaven, but he mentions the, this battle between two cities. And what Peter, in his biblically informed imagination, does is take Psalm 24 and fill in the gaps. He takes Psalm 24 and kind of paints the picture, right? Well, so we go back to Psalm 24. And it's not just Psalm 24. This is the clear testimony of all of the Old Testament. There is a king 
coming. The world is waiting for that king. The world is uh, in darkness now, but the king is coming to his city. And when the king comes to his city, the city will respond, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. The king of glory will come in. This is the great moment of history that Peter is waiting for. And he's just testified, right? You are the king. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one of God. What does Peter expect? He expects Jesus to ride into Jesus' city and begin the end of all things. And guess what Jesus does? He gets on a donkey, rides into city, and begins the end of all things. It's happening. This is the moment. Throughout the Gospels, wait, wait, don't tell anyone. Even in this passage, okay, Peter, you got it. I am the Messiah. Now, keep it on the down low, right? Because the world isn't ready yet, but it's about to be. And the next thing that happens, uh, actually, it's funny. Peter gets a picture here, Gates. And the next thing that's going to happen is Jesus himself gets a picture of the transfiguration, of the resurrection that's going to come. Both Peter and Jesus get a picture of the things that are going to come to prepare them for what they must face in Jerusalem. And the next thing that Jesus does is he gets on a donkey and very obviously marches into Jerusalem in fulfillment of the Old Testament and of no less importance, this particular psalm. Peter fills in the gaps. There is a city, the city of heaven that is doing battle. It, its focal point, its hub is Jerusalem and the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle comes into Jerusalem to redeem this city, to begin the kingdom of God on earth, to set things in motion. But Jesus knows something that Peter doesn't, that he's going to do it not through might, not through power, not through force of arms, not by bringing judgment upon the Jew first and also the Greek, but by dying. It's a reminder. Jesus knows that he is going to accomplish his purposes in the exact opposite way that Peter and the rest of the disciples expect. And it has to be this way. It has to be this way for reasons that we will soon better appreciate. But it has to be this way if that city, if Jesus' city is going to have any citizens in it, it has to be this way. Otherwise, he will just be a king over nothing. An empty world. It has to be this way. Jesus is going to reveal his kingdom. He's going to reveal the weapons of his warfare that undo the weapons of darkness. Gradually, over the next week plus three days, Peter is going to see how the kingdom of God works, how the heavenly city works, how the heavenly gates will function. Jesus will march into this city, and what he will do to bring about the beginning of the end is not declare war, but to sacrifice himself for his people. Satan uses sin. Satan uses darkness. Satan uses death to populate his city. Jesus, the first thing that he does in order to fill his city with citizens is to die for them. He uses sacrifice. He sacrifices even his own life out of love for those 
who currently are saying, crucify him, crucify him. That is at the heart of the Christian gospel. That is at the heart of what we proclaim, that the victory of God is not a victory of force, not a victory of absolute power, not the victory of judgment, but first and foremost, the victory of love, which would sacrifice himself for those who have sinned, who had cried out against him. And then what he does is he shows us that. He proclaims it. He tells it. Peter, don't tell anyone. When Jesus casts out demons, the garrison demoniac, don't tell anyone. But as soon as he dies, as soon as his death occurs, the next thing that happens is this is to be proclaimed to the whole earth. The, the darkness is to be turned back. The lies that the devil tells us are to be undone. It's interesting, uh, I was reading commentary, uh, Calvin actually mentions this, that uh, in, in Jesus' death, in the course of Jesus' death, lies are exposed. The lies that the devil, the world tells us are exposed. One of those lies is that you can have justice on the earth. We pursue justice. We want justice. We want justice in the city. We want justice for our neighbors. That's something we delight in. But one of the things that happens is Jesus is tried by two courts of law. He's tried by the Jew first and also the Greek. And both courts find Jesus innocent. The Sanhedrin finds Jesus innocent by their own rules. They can't get two testimonies to match. Jesus is innocent. And after being innocent, he declares himself to be son of God. And on that basis, they crucify him. Or they send him to crucify him. The Romans, Pilate, thrice pronounces Jesus innocent. In a climactic moment in Matthew, wipes his hands of Jesus' blood and says, be it on your heads. But that's not how things work. You can't just declare that that's not... The Roman court declares him innocent. And both human courts, the Jew first and also the Greek, and it is both, declare Jesus innocent and kill him anyway. What God is doing at the cross is exposing the, the fractures, the oppression, the powerlessness of this present world order. There is no justice here. You need another kingdom, a new kingdom, to bring justice. The crucifixion, the death of Christ exposes, it is a sacrifice of love, it exposes the lies of the devil. And the third thing it brings is new life. Jesus doesn't stay dead. It's not, hear this, hear, hear, I'm going to say this provocatively, but also carefully. And if those two things don't match, I'm sorry. Jesus' death doesn't save you, his resurrection does. If Jesus stayed dead, according to Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, you are still in your sins. It is the fact that Jesus died in your place and was raised to newness of life, to perfect life, life that will not end, life that does not diminish with time, life that doesn't obey the second rules of thermodynamics. It doesn't decay, but rather continues to flourish more and more. Jesus is raised with eternal life. Again, we get very little metaphysics here, but a lot of pictures in Scripture to describe to us the glory of the life that is to come. 
Jesus is firstborn from the dead. He's the first to experience that kind of resurrection life, that perfect bodily raised. You're not, you're not spirits in heaven. You're not ghosts. Gloriously material bodily resurrection in which life and love and happiness don't diminish but forever flourish. They can't but flourish. I don't know how the physics works. I wish I did. But life cannot but flourish in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the life that Jesus has now, and it's the life that he promises to us. And because he did this this way, he is able to do something that that hell's kingdom cannot do. Jesus is able to invite you into his kingdom. He populates it not through sin, not through judgment. He populates it through this new life which he gives to you, making you fit for the heavenly realms. Look, look, um, look at, and turn there this time. I, we've saved our flipping energy for this very moment. Revelation 21. Another set of pictures. John now, well, actually, it's Jesus showing John the new heavens and the new earth. The new city. His city. His city, like Hell's city, has a great high wall. Strong and mighty. Fit for warfare. A fortress. Glorious. Beautiful. His city is powerful beyond measure. And 12 gates. And at the gates... 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. By the way, 12 is a lot of gates. That's a lot of gates. I know, like, New York has 27 bridges or whatever into, you know, into Manhattan, and that, so 12 doesn't seem like a lot of gates to us, but 12 is a lot of gates. If you, if you think about a city in terms of, like, walls to protect the city, and the, gate, and the gates are kind of entry points, that you've just Swiss cheesed your city. You, you, I mean, 12 is a lot. It is a prodigal amount of gates. There's a lot of entryways now. It's, it's a bold number of gates, okay? And, and if you keep going, I, a little later somewhere, um, There's no temple in the city for the Lord God, the Almighty, uh, is uh, its temple. And the city has no need of sun and moon or to shine for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light all the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Twelve gates and they're never shut. Why? To To perpetually populate the city. Hell's gates have to be shut, otherwise people would want to leave there. Hell's gates have to be shut because it is the embattled force. It is the losing power. It is besieged by the... Heaven's gates, by contrast, are perpetually open because it's safe, because it's glorious, because it's perpetually full of eternal and everlasting life. Heaven's gates are open. They're open all the time. And the wider those gates and the longer they're open, the more... They can be filled with the glories of the kings of the earth. Us. We bring our glories with us into heaven. We, 
We're to seek treasure, heavenly treasures. Why? Because they come with us into the heavenly realms. We have been invited by Jesus. Because he did it this way, through death, through sacrifice, for his people, heaven's gates are perpetually open and all who want can come and enter in. Come. I mean, I don't, have, I don't know what else to say. Come. Come into the heavenly gates. Come into this city. It is an open invitation. You do not have to clean yourself up first. You, you don't have to. It's just, it's there. Receive Jesus as Savior and Lord and come and be no longer fearful, no longer closed in, no longer in the prison that is hell's gates, hell's fortress, but in the new life that awaits you in the new heavens and the new earth. There's one more surprise. Permit me one more surprise in this text. There's one more twist. Remember, Jesus doesn't say hell's gates, heaven's gates. He says hell's gates, you, Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. First point of application, just come into the heavenly city and, and rejoice and be comforted. Second, we, the church, Peter, the apostles, the church that Jesus has founded as an outpost of that heavenly city here on the earth, we are an earthly representation of this heavenly reality. We are to be like that city, not the devil's city. We are, we are to invite people to come, to see, to find in Christ freedom from the prison, the lies, the deceitfulness of the world. We are called to proclaim the glories of that kingdom. We are called as a church to use the same weapon. We, see, we are the heavenly city in earthly form. We are the new life but amidst a realm of decay and death. We are an open, a protected, a wonderful place for people to gather. And so the, the weapons of the church are the very weapons of Christ. As Christ put Satan to flight, so we put Satan to flight, not by some sort of magic sword that falls from heaven, but rather using the same means that he did, Sacrifice, light, welcome. One of the things I remember about Marty is that she always, always welcomed us. Every single week, she would weave through people to say hi to us, which became increasingly difficult as she got older. She was always, you can, y'all you, you, you can testify, she was always doing that. She was receiving, she had, a, she had an open door policy. The church had, needs to have an open door policy. I've been here long enough. I remember when this sanctuary wasn't air conditioned. Those were dark days. 
Uh, and in the summer, we would open these doors and, you know, let the, uh, the you hear all the road noise and all of these kinds of things. But I loved, and, and we have to leave them shut for reasons now, but, so the air conditioning stays there. Um, but there's a powerful symbol in the open door, in the open gate, in a perpetually welcoming space. Okay, these doors have to be closed because of things. But we can open, we can leave our doors spiritually open. It's a metaphor, right? How do you create, how do we create as a church? And I'm thinking not just about Christ the King. I'm thinking about my church in Northern Virginia. I'm thinking about the American church. I'm thinking about the Western church. I'm thinking about the church Catholic. How do we, because we're not considered by the world open door kind of people. How do we create a new narrative? How do we as Christians pursue all are welcome? Come and find comfort and find peace. You might be thinking to yourself, I don't have the same gifts. I don't, I'm not a hospitable person. I, I don't know how to make an amazing lasagna. Like, how, how do I? Well, you have gifts. Use your gifts to open those doors. Find ways to cultivate, to empower the church, to welcome the Jew first and also the Greek, which is to say everyone, the oppressed and the oppressor, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, the orphan, the widow, and the entrepreneur. Everyone, we say, come. The gates are open. Find life. Father, we pray that you would give us a heart that is generous, a heart that is grace-filled, a heart that delights in the good gifts of your kingdom. And that we would be so confident, so filled so protected, so safe that we would not hesitate to call even our own enemies into this place as friends. We pray this in your name. Amen.